Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, I tell a story that I've been sitting on for quite a while. I figured since Brett and I were about to head out on our inaugural Content Clearinghouse skydiving trip, now would be a good time to share this shocking series of events. Plus, biohazard tents in my living room. Then, Brett hates on critics but loves some dystopian sci-fi as he escapes the terrible reality of 2020. I mean, uh, 2045. With the virtual world oasis. Get ready for Ernest Klein's book, Ready Player One. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett, how are you, buddy? I'm doing pretty awesome. Hey, I got a surprise for you. I told you to turn off video. Yes. So let's, let's go ahead and turn that on. Ready to access that? All right, I hit the uh, turn video on button. All right, how are you doing? Man, look at that <laughs> handlebar mustache and goatee. You look like... <laughs> You look like a, an outlaw biker right now, buddy. Yeah, so um, I got some stuff coming up in October where basically the the second beard that I've grown for 2020 is going to have to go bye-bye. But I just climbed a second peak with legendary Derek Perkoski uh, in the last... Good friend. Like, yep. In the last like three days, he's hiking all 114... 11ers in the state of Idaho. It's like a five-year project. It would take a normal person 70 years, but it takes Derek, uh, you know, five years. But I wanted to really stand out on his trophy wall. So instead of just taking the beard off, I uh, just ran the clippers <laughs> through it. Thought you'd enjoy that. You need to share a picture of this on the Instagram because this is <laughs> you have a gift at growing facial hair, my friend. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, not something I'm usually able to do, but uh, you know, 2020 is bringing out the the thing in people. So I hear that you have a crazy story to tell, and oh I I'm literally at the edge of my seat. Um, I've read your text to uh Derek to Bree to Danielle now to Michael Biederman to Jen Danielle's brother like it, I uh, I got you got to fill me in man you're freaking me out well you might be on the edge of your seat but this is not a seat you would want to sit on so friday we come down it's a normal morning we're like getting our daughter Isla ready for swim class i go in the downstairs bathroom and i notice notice that there's no like there's no soft way to say this. We had sewage bubbling up over the rim of the toilet, flooding our bathroom. And I was just like, oh my God, I don't have time to deal with this. We have to be out of the door in like 15 minutes. So we go to swim class. Everything is, you know, we get that done. It's all normal. We come home and I'm like, okay, now I have to go in the basement because I have a feeling that we have some issues going on with our, with our plumbing in the basement. I go down there there's like two inches of standing water in our utility room. And it, I mean, it, I guess water is a gener, general or a generous term for it. So 
we have like this major flooding issue. So we call a plumber. They come out and they're like, yeah, you guys have some serious problems with your drainage pipe settling. So we have a flat spot in our drainage. So basically everything is just backing up. So what happens is the plumber says, I'm not going to be able to fix this without like a restoration crew here. So the restoration crew shows up. They're in hazmat suits. They're cleaning out the, the basement. Now we have, we basically have two biohazard containment areas in our house right now from these guys blocking everything off. Yesterday, they're jackhammering up our basement to fix our pipes. So we have this huge project going on. It's going to probably be a week or two of issues. But basically what it boils down to is if you hear a little bit of weird buzz in the background of my audio, like a a weird room tone, it's because we have these HEPA filters set up that are just like running nonstop 24-7 in our basement and the bathroom. So they're you know, they're cleaning the house out. They're drying everything out. It's going to be this huge insurance claim. I think we're going to get, get a new bathroom out of it because they have to tear the entire bathroom out to clean it. It's been a major disaster. So it's been a pretty crazy couple of days. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And to, to the listeners out there, uh, Josh just texted me that there's two biohazard <laughs> tents in his house. So, of course, I'm thinking... You know, is meth is meth a meth lab involved, or is this uh, like a, a infectious disease or a zombie thing? Like, what is going on? Nothing. Um, that so actually, I'm actually kind of relieved to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm relieved too. They didn't find the meth lab. That would have been a disaster if that had yeah. happened. True so that. on a lighter note, though, uh, with COVID this year there's no skydiving nationals like skydiving nationals got canceled because you know they're they're not really allowed to do these big gatherings usually with hundreds or maybe even thousands of people showing up to nationals so this year uh skydive chicago decided to do an online nationals they called it skydiving nationals 2.0 and it was kind of a last minute thing my team rusty who's been on the show before and our our buddy mickey they were like hey man you want to compete one more time? So for the last two days, we we showed up at uh, the local drop zone, no training, and just pretty much went head-to-head with uh, the best team in the world. We basically were coming off uh, almost a year hiatus because we had retired our team last year. And so our first skydive, our first competition jump yesterday was our first jump together in almost a year. So it was pretty awesome, man. It was cool to like be back on the plane with those guys and kind of expecting to never really do a team jump with them again. So we got out there and banged that out, and that really raised my spirits after our little overflow incident on Friday. Well, that that's awesome, man. And actually, on that note, um, we're having the first content clearinghouse skydiving trip coming up. So next week, there actually will not be an episode uh, on the first because uh, you and I will be uh, jumping out of planes with all those same people, a lot of Colorado people. We're going to be traveling down to Texas and doing some insane uh, stunt work, content clearinghouse stunt work. And this will be the first time that you and I have skydived together, I think, in probably 10 years. Easily, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited about this, especially since the show like pretty much got you back in the sky. It's really cool that you know this was us being able to go together was also 
kind of a last minute addition to the trip, but now we get to go and like skydive and have an awesome time. And unfortunately we can't release a show while we're gone. We won't have time to record, but we should have some really awesome video to share with you guys on the Instagram. Oh, can't wait. And, uh, you know, if there's two concrete successes right off the bat with the content clearing house, it's that I'm skydiving again. And it's that you got a one wheel. Oh man. Speaking of one wheel. So my friend Quentin, shout out to Quentin. He, he's a listener to the show. He told me like, Hey man, I've been listening to your podcast and all of a sudden, I'm getting all these advertisements for one wheel on my on my phone. So apparently, our phones are listening to us, and they're using the content clearinghouse as a uh, a marketing target. So hey, one wheel, you know, if you guys want to sponsor the show, hit us up. We're clearly doing the work for you. That reminds me of a new Netflix documentary that. Uh, seems kind of interesting. I think it's called The Social Dilemma, and it's all... I, I haven't seen it yet. i got to add it to the content circuit, but it's all about uh, how our apps are spying on us. So I'm sure I'll enjoy watching that. There's a good reply all about that, actually, about uh, how Facebook spies on you. Oh. Hi, Mark. <laughs> He's listening. <laughs> well, I guess in... Uh, in honor of our skydiving trip that we're going to take, I wanted to, for the off top, I wanted to regale you with another skydiving story. I've kind of been sitting on this one for a while, but it feels like the right time, seeing as how we're about to go jump together. So, Brett, I don't know if you have had this stress fantasy. I know I have. Pretty much since the day I started skydiving, I always had kind of the vision or the fantasy of someone like jumping out of the plane and knocking themselves out. Is this something that you think about or is just something just, just goes through my brain? Uh, you know, I mean, you have so much more time in the air than I do. Um, I can't say that this is anything I've fantasized about it. I mean, I definitely have like a healthy fear of uh, somebody corking into me and, and like colliding with somebody and, and me or the other person getting injured. But, um, you know, Rusty, uh, as we've discussed on the show and in an interview with him, he actually performed a stunt as Henry Cavill stunt double for the amazing Mission Impossible Fallout movie. And after that, you know, I, I, I'm surprised that I haven't... Um, it hasn't impacted my imagination and I haven't thought about this, but I cannot wait to hear this story. I, I, oh man. So, I mean, skydiving is already like learning to skydive is already kind of like going to superhero school. You know, you're like, you're learning like the, the greatest human f- fantasy power that there is like the power of flight. And I just remember when I was first learning to jump, sitting on the plane and seeing people like do like a gainer out of the plane, just like, oh my God, what would happen if you hit your head on the door? Like somebody would have to go after you. And not not to say that I was trying to bring a situation like that into my life, but just like imagining that it could happen and, you know, like having like point break running through my mind and all these like crazy action scenarios for movies. And it just always, you know, like, since the very beginning, it's always occurred to me that something like that could happen. So you and I, we used to work together at the wind tunnel, which everyone knows. And at the wind tunnel, we used to have something called a boogie tour. 
uh, a boogie, which we've also discussed on the show. It's kind of like it's like a skydiving party. Everybody gets together and jumps for the weekend. So we would travel around as the wind tunnel employees, and we would go and organize these boogies and you know plan skydives for people, do coaching, sell tunnel time. And it was – I was on the boogie tour when this incident happened. So if you're familiar with humans and the need to breathe oxygen – you probably know that at a certain point, a certain altitude, we as humans kind of top out where, you know, the, the oxygen level at a certain altitude just doesn't cut it for us anymore. And a typical skydive, we will go, you know, we'll go to about 13,500 feet. And that's, uh, that's typically AGL, like above ground level. A human can function fairly normally up till about 17,500 feet MSO, which is mean sea level. Above that, you need supplemental oxygen. So that's why I like when people are, you know, climbing Everest or something, they're carrying oxygen bottles with them. So we were at an event, which uh, I'm going to keep everything uh, fairly obscure and anonymous in this story. But we were at a, an event organizing for the tunnel. And uh, at the event, we were going to do a high altitude skydive from about 21 to 22,000 feet. Now, typically when you do this, at about 10,000 feet, you go on supplemental oxygen and you're pre-breathing, you're saturating your bloodstream. So by the time you get to full altitude, you've oversaturated with oxygen. So you have a bit of a reserve in your bloodstream when you come off of the oxygen cannula until you jump out of the plane. And after you free fall for, you know, like 15, 20 seconds, you typically get down to where the air is thick enough for you to breathe and function normally again. Well, on this particular day, we, uh, we were sharing oxygen masks, which is not uh, the traditional way that you would do this. Typically, everyone has... It's also has not, uh, not COVID-approved, of course. Of, yeah, this is pre-COVID, so <laughs> pre-COVID. A, a lot of rules were different back then. And I remember like you know, when I was told, like, hey, we're going to be sharing masks. We have five people and only four masks. I remember saying, you know, like, I don't think that's really legit. And kind of the consensus was, oh, we do this all the time. You know, I'm there like as a guest, I'm not going to make waves or anything. So I'm like, as long as I have a mask, fine. So on the way up, passing the masks around, uh, we get to altitude, everything is fine. Door opens, move towards the door, give the count, ready, set, go, we all jump out. So I come out of the plane and there's video of all this. We will share video. Um, this I just checked the video view count and it has about... 340,000 views. So we'll share this in the show notes if you guys want to see like a play-by-play of everything that happened on this skydive. So I jump out. In the video, you'll see me. I'm wearing a white helmet. I fly down to... I'm just going to call in my buddy. Fly down. He is flying base on this skydive, which essentially means that he's the target. Everyone dives down and builds on him. So as I get down on level with my buddy, he rolls over on his side and starts spinning out of control. And my first thought was, you know, why is he, why is he tumbling? This guy knows how to fly. And we're doing what's called free flying, which is where you're vertical. You know, you're like either sitting up like you're in a chair or you're flying upside down in your head. And I know that he knows how to sit fly. So I wonder why he's spinning and tumbling. And after he spins like two or three times, I get a look at his face and I can see that he's kind of like seizing. Like he has like this and almost you know, it looks like half of his face is like crunched up and his eyes are closed. It kind of looks like 
what I imagine someone on nitrous in a dentist chair might look like. And then it occurs to me like, oh, this guy is unconscious. He's passed out. He's hypoxic because we were sharing masks. And I look around and I notice there's like no one else anywhere around us. So a little bit of background on skydiving. If you're not a jumper, we typically fly in either a flat orientation, which falls at about 120 miles an hour, like if you're on your belly, or we'll fly the, vertical. Yeah, the, the speed limit, we like to mention that, um, you know, it goes great on t-shirts, but it actually is a more of a minimum speed limit exactly. than, than an actual speed limit. It's hard to fall much slower than that. But <laughs> that is, you know, like if you're on your belly, you're going to be doing about 120. If you're vertical, you're probably going to be doing about 180 miles an hour. But when he rolled over on his side, he was falling at this very strange speed, about 130 to 140 miles an hour, which is very awkward speed to fall. Now, luckily, I'm like fairly lanky, tall-ish dude. Plus, I've been working in a wind tunnel for you know the past year and a half. So when you work in a wind tunnel, you have a lot of time in the wind and you just practice, you know, like flying these strange body positions. So like flying upright with your legs in the splits or like flying on your side or flying upside down, but trying to fall at, you know, 120 miles an hour, just, you have so much exposure to the free fall environment that you actually have the chance to do things like that. So as I look around, I realize like no one else is at this fall rate. It's just me and him and he's spinning. And so I kind of like call back on my time when I was a skydiving instructor and you know, you're trained to like catch people when they're rolling or spinning. Usually you're doing this on your belly, but again, with the wind tunnel experience, we had trained like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to fly upside down and try to stop Sony from spinning just because we have time. So I, I move in and I'm like, I need, I need to try to stop him. So I do these kind of like probing strikes with my arm. I put my arm out and first time I miss the second time I get kind of like knocked back. Cause he's spinning so fast. And the whole time I'm having to watch out and make sure that I don't get kicked and knocked out. I couldn't get a hold of him with my hands. So I reached with my feet and I, I got my feet around his ankles and it started to stabilize him for a second. But then like the G force has just ripped him away from me. And that is like when I started to feel like this is kind of like a desperate situation. So on the video, if you guys watch it in the show notes, you'll see that I start going like just trying to grab whatever I could and the fall rate is kind of changing and tumbling the whole time. So I'm like rolling down to my belly, then popping upside down, then rolling back into a sit. And about, say about eight or 9,000 feet, there's like a lucky break where he, he rolls up to his feet for just a second and he kind of stabs his legs out and falls over. And as he does, it kind of like falls right into my lap and I'm able to grab a hold of his shoulder straps. Now, when I do that, now I'm kind of riding on his back like, piggyback ride and I'm kind of faced with these these two choices I can either roll off to the side and try to open his main parachute or I can just kind of grab his reserve with my left hand and fall away and try to deploy that but both of those kind of present the same problem of you know like I'm on his back and that's where the parachute is located so as I do this I have to try to get out of the way as I deploy him and as those thoughts are going through my mind another skydiver we'll just call him my other buddy flies in, tackles us, helps me roll him over to his belly. And as he does, we're both holding on, trying to stabilize him. And he kind of starts like seizing, like 
it's like his body is trying to go back into the sit flight position. At that point, my other buddy on the far side just dumps out his main, parachute opens. We fly away, open up, and for like the next two or three minutes under my parachute, I'm just like huffing and puffing. And I can't believe what has just happened to me. So we fly down, we land. He comes in, lands right next to us, and he's like, hey, guys, what happened? I just woke up under my parachute, and we're like, oh, my God, you've got to see this video, bro. You're not going to believe what just happened because he was completely out of it. He had no recollection of anything that happened since he'd left the plane. Wow. On the ground, you know, like it's all, it all started to sink in, like what had happened. And, you know, a a while later I see him like kind of sitting over in the corner, you know, just kind of like lost in thought. I walk over, I sit down next to him. We kind of like make eye contact and then we're like, yep. And then that was kind of all we really said about it. It was, we just kind of went our separate ways. And and then I was, you know, it was the end of the event. I went home a few months later. I get a text from the, from the owner of the drop zone. And he's like, Hey, you got to check this out. He sends me some photographs and a little bit more background on skydiving. When you skydive, you have a device called an AAD, an automatic activation device. And this device is, it's a electronic barometer that reads your fall rate and uh, your altitude. And if it determines that you are unconscious, free falling, you know, at, thousand feet it arms at 750 feet it fires this explosive cutter across your reserve closing loop which in theory releases your reserve and opens it independent of any action from you so this is like kind of like a it's a hail mary basically right i mean it's total hail mary it's like the but it has saved lives yeah there's at least a thousand saves from these the company is called cypress shout out cypress so it's a total you know, it's a one in a million that you should ever need to use it. In fact, everyone should have one, but no one ever wants to have an AAD deployment under their belt because it means that, you know, you like you almost died. So he sends, sends me these pictures and it shows that my buddy's AAD had been improperly installed. And so the whole time for the last few months, I had thought like, yeah, we totally like, you know, we grabbed him and sa- saved him in free fall, but if we hadn't been there, the AAD would have saved him. And then it like dawned on me that like, no, that was that option did not exist for him. His equipment was improperly rigged. He would have just burned in and cratered. And so it kind of got me thinking. It was like this this was like it went from this crazy event to almost like this defining moment in my life where I realized that like everything that I had been doing in my adult life leading up to this had really been preparing me for this one moment, you know, to have the thousand plus skydiving instructor jumps under my belt. So understanding like what a tumbling student is all about and how to stop them having worked in the wind tunnel for, you know, a year and a half and had all that kind of free flight time to just kind of play around and mess around with fall rates and all these things. And I felt like, all of those events had just kind of like deposited me in my body frame that could fall at this certain speed, like into free fall with this guy and at this perfect moment to be there to actually be able to make a difference. And it's the kind of thing that, I don't know, just every once in a while, it'll just like pop up in my mind and it 
kind of makes me think about like the nature of coincidence, which sometimes I'm like, yeah, I don't believe in coincidences. And other times I'm like, yeah, there's no real reason to the universe. But that's like, it's like a moment where, you know, I just realized that like, it's like the, the perfect storm. And sometimes those perfect storms do come together in a way that can make a difference in the world. And I wanted to share the story with you because it's a, it's an event that was like really important to me. And, you know, if you guys want to see some crazy skydiving video, check out the show notes and you can see exactly what this kind of thing looks like in free fall. I'm pretty much speechless. I mean, I, I have seen the video and I have heard the story, but uh, never to that level of detail. And I mean, the like the fact that his automatic activation device was improperly installed, improperly rigged, if you will, was a detail in that story that if you remember, I had to ask you recently if that was even real because it just seemed, I mean, it's just like that's another... Uh, one in a million on top of a one a million a one in a million chance i mean that's just so unlikely for that to happen for you to need it and for it to not work properly when you do need it i mean it's just uh boy and do you this this person that had this experience who you saved have you spoken to them after finding out that this uh the cypress would not have fired uh, correctly. I have, like, for a while, they were still, like, coming to the wind tunnel and flying, and I'd see him, you know, like, once a year or something. And uh, he is, he's a military guy, and he's uh, hes part of um, an artillery unit. And a few years later, he brought me all of their unit's challenge coins, which are, like, these... I think everyone in the military probably gets these like in their units, but like to have one given to you by someone, you know, it's like, it's like a, an honor. So he gave me, he gave me those as like a thank you. So he definitely, you know, everyone kind of understood the gravity of the situation and like the fortuitousness of everything that went down. So it was really cool to get those. I've got those on my shelf. They're like on my, uh, my curious cabinet they're like prominently displayed because they're like some of my most prized possessions. That's really cool. Now, did Mission Impossible Fallout bring back any like traumatic memories from this event? I just wonder why they didn't hit me up for a writing credit. <laughs> wow, that's unbelievable, Josh. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, I, you know, will this get listeners more interested in skydiving if they don't already jump out of planes or is this going to be somewhat of a deterrent? Because I would like to reiterate skydiving is a relatively safe activity if done properly. And uh, it is a, a lot of fun. <laughs> I highly recommend it. If you're going to go to high altitude, saturate your bloodstream with oxygen. Lesson learned. That's right. That's right. Just, uh, you know watch david blaine flying away on some balloons and and don't do what he does because he is a professional exactly that's great <laughs> advice brett so um besides david blaine's ascension stunt what's on your content circuit this week man anything new well i do have something that's pretty amazing i had to mask up for this other uh except for the times i was eating popcorn because i braved 
the uh, murky waters of real life movie theater going experiences and I watched Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Oh my God. So jealous, bro. You and Tom Cruise going out to the movies together. We, I didn't see Tom. He must have been sitting right behind me. But uh, I, I got to say, it's, um, it is challenging. Uh, I can't wait for you to see it. You are going to have a lot to say, especially about the temporal pincer movement. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But I thought it was fantastic. It was extremely entertaining. And, uh, but it, you know, it's, I, I can't say it's like super accessible. I think like a lot of his movies, it's going to get better on a repeated viewings. And I, you know, I think that's like his goal is he wants you to come back and explore that content again and again and again until it makes sense. Uh, but I loved it. It's a probably his least challenging movies are the dark Knight trilogy. And, but even those, they're just like so good that you want to watch them over and over but you Absolutely. know, like, uh, like Inception, Interstellar, they're both just like they're such dense movies that I just feel like you have to be a super genius to understand everything that's going on the first time. You know, it's like it's like designed for repeat viewing. Absolutely, definitely. And I and I remember leaving the movie theater uh, when I watched Inception, being like, okay, uh, that went over my head. I'm confused now. I I feel like. Oh yeah, Inception. It's simple. It's just a dream within a dream. It's easy peasy. Classic. You know, like so. It. I mean, it just. I think it just takes some like some time and some like a discussion with your friends and some thinking. And I mean, that's the beauty of content is having those discussions, reading those articles, watching those YouTube videos, coming back to it, uh, kind of knowing some of the twists and the turns. But I mean, this is when you start messing with time. Uh, you know, it like our, our brains are not, uh, our brains just, we see this time as like this linear thing and, uh, he's gonna, he's gonna mess with that a little bit for sure. And I saw that, um, I watched a couple of like behind the scenes making of little vignettes and they said that, that Tenet probably has less VFS, VFX shots than your average romantic comedy like most of the (laughs) most of the effects were done in camera which wow just from like seeing the trailers i can't even imagine how they're doing these like i guess it's not time reversal is it it's like they're how do they explain it in the movie well, all all the uh, I'm not gonna touch anything related to time because I just think that goes into spoiler territory. Mm, but fair enough. I will say that that airplane I used to fly, uh, the the Queen of the Skies, the Boeing seven forty seven, that does crash into a building in the movie, um, and I'm, I'm I feel okay spoiling that because it is in all the trailers, and that was a real freaking seven forty seven. So that was one of the making ofs I saw. <laughs> yeah, insane yep. man. <laughs> well, insane. To alleviate the risk of going into uh, any uh, deeper spoiler territory, let's move on. Everyone see Tenet, it sounds like. For sure. So I found a new podcast that I've been super into. I found this on one of the podcast boards that I frequent on social media. And uh, it's called Have Not Seen This. And it's a movie podcast hosted by uh, this movie critic, Rafe Welsh. 
and he has guests come on and they bring a classic movie that they love that they're surprised when they hear other people haven't seen. I think that might be like almost word for word their tagline. And they just do these like really deep, usually like riddled with spoilers, but like these deep discussions on all these classic movies and hearing people that are like super knowledgeable about content talk about it. It's cool because it helps me kind of like, it helps me maybe like refine the way that I think about consuming media whenever I'm watching or reading things. It helps me like kind of formulate my thoughts. And it's great to hear like these people who are professionals at this. It, a lot of it is like other podcasters and spe- especially him. He always has these amazing takes on whatever the content is. And it's really interesting when it's like a movie he's never seen before because you see how fast his mind works from, you know, professionally reviewing movies for years that he can like pick up on all this stuff that even with some of the movies I've seen, I'm just like, wow, that I don't think that would have ever occurred to me. So that's a really great Sounds podcast. Sounds like a bit of a contentologist. Uh, we didn't can, realize we he was in the in the s- thing. Send him an honorary degree for the thing that we invented. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds pretty cool. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. We'll link it in the show notes. Perfect. Well, uh, let's take a quick break, and then uh, when we come back, I'm going to get into some content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now, it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. (gasps) Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse, friends. Brett, once again, in classic Content Clearinghouse fashion, I have no idea what you're covering today. So lay it on me. Absolutely. Welcome to the Oasis, Josh. The year is 2045. And if living in Columbus, Ohio isn't already a less than ideal situation, imagine a uh, pretty bad uh, collective human disaster. We're talking global warming, overpopulation, 
widespread social problems, economic stagnation, energy shortages. But there is one awesome thing. It's uh, a bit of a place to escape. So it's almost a world where anyone can be anyone or do anything. And it's almost like a giant video game. And it's called The Oasis. So today, I'm talking about one of my all-time favorite books, Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. I was going to say, Ernest Klein could not have written that intro better himself, Brett. Oh, I I appreciate that. I'm a big fan of this book, yeah. So, Ready Player One is a 2011 science fiction novel. Uh, It is actually Klein's debut novel, his very first novel. That always impresses me uh, when one of these sci-fi authors, or just any author, their first novel just knocks it out of the park. Doesn't that make it so much harder for the second book, though? (sighs) Set the bar so high. I wonder if there is that effect, because I know, uh, what do they call it, the sophomore album effect or something like that with music? Yeah. Well, I can Um, tell you, I did start to read a second book, Armada, and it's no Ready Player One. Mm, Okay. Uh, Shoot. Well, there's always going to be the one, the one, the number one book. Now, Ready Player One is actually one of the one of these rare reads that I did not hear about from you, from a friend. I didn't read about it. Um, even the uh, the very secretive and very real content channels that we frequent, the, uh, the professional underground contentologists, um, I th- even that didn't inform me. I actually saw this book at an airport, and it was the text on the front of it that caught my eye. And I, so I just quickly read the blurb on the back and I just bought it on a whim. And it's just, you know, it speaks to the, uh, I know you do a lot of graphic design, a lot of logo work. If this doesn't highlight the importance of good design, I don't know what does because it's like the font. It's just font that got me to read this book. Yeah. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a big blocky. Well, I guess, 80s font is the only way to say it well said (laughs) now um i love this book and i'm not the only one this was a new york times bestseller it was praised by uh, several sources including usa today writing the novel is uh undoubtedly qualified klein as the hottest geek on the planet right now Uh, npr said the book was ridiculously fun and large-hearted now, my favorite praise comes from Rebecca Searle of HuffPost. She described the book as the grown-ups Harry Potter and that it has all it has it all. Nostalgia, trivia, adventure, romance, heart, and dare I say it, some very fascinating social commentary. Now, interestingly, it was not all praise with this book. Uh, I learned during my research that this was actually a pretty polarizing book. And that surprises me, to be honest. I, I'm pretty easy to please when it comes to entertainment. So maybe I'm not the best judge. You're a contentologist, uh, though. You have high standards. I do. And this is, I mean, it's something you and I have in common, I think. Like, we we are contentologists. We are not critics. It's official, we enj- though. It's a real we, thing. It's real. Don't challenge us on that. <laughs> uh, I'm, you and I love entertainment, though. We really, you know, it's... We're easy to please, but 
it's not like we like everything. And out of the many things that I do like, only the best of the best is going to rise to the level of making it onto the podcast. And this book is one of those things. I mean, it is it is fun. It is engaging. It's lighthearted. And it truly comes served with a proper dose of some serious sci-fi. Now, when I did examine some of the criticisms of the book, it seemed to come down to a handful of things. And so I just want to get out there and address them. So for some critics, Ready Player One rides this line between a young adult's book or something for adolescents and a more serious, mature work. And to that I say, if you're a serious adult who wants to read some really serious stuff, then sure, get into some Tolstoy, get read War and Peace. I think this is for everybody. I think this is freaking awesome. I think straddling that line is what makes the best books. Some of my favorite I, books I agree. straddle that exact line because it's like, it's approachable. It's not written in prose. I think it's kind of like, it's the same reason that I don't always agree with critics. It's that just the very act of professionally criticizing and reviewing content, it kind of puts you less in the headspace of just appreciating it for its entertainment value and more into the headspace of just wanting to impress the other people who know about your field. And so you get a lot of these reviews that don't really apply to like the common man. I mean, I know we're contentologists, but we're both pretty common still. And I think that, you know, a lot of times I'll read a review and I'm just like, you know what? I just wanted this movie to be this like awesome escape fantasy for two hours. I don't care about, you know, the details of maybe like, you know, what the writer should have been getting at or any of these other like things that, someone who does this professionally, you know, thinks qualifies them as like a deep thinker. And it's kind of the same thing with, you know, this like mature writing. It's almost like the writer's trying to impress you more with their ability to put prose on the paper than their ability to entertain you. And Ready Player One is just like, it's like a, it's a page burner. You just can't put it down. And it gives you at the end, you almost get like, it's almost like post avatar syndrome. You get like post Ready Player One syndrome where you're just like, why do I not live in an apocalyptic future with the Oasis as my only escape? That sounds so much better than living in 2020. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, absolutely. I, you know, and speaking of critics, um, some critics have found fault with the abundance of pop culture references. Uh, one buzzkill called it an unbearable <laughs> celebration of nostalgic juvenilia. Now, One of the best things this... about it. <laughs> exactly. Does this critic seem like he's really fun to hang out with at parties? No. Did he hit the nail on the head, though, with this review? Also no. So if you're ever making love to your wife, girlfriend, <laughs> real doll, whatever, and you want to you, you last just a little bit longer in bed, just think about all the critics out there, like <laughs> Nick Shager, who wrote a scathing review for Ready Player One that appeared in the Daily Beast... And think of all those Nicks just shitting on the fantastic content that's out there. Hashtag Nick Shager. In the, uh... <laughs> no, let's, <laughs> in let's not do post. this. I don't know. I don't know why I am putting his first and last name in this. Well, don't put your shitty opinions out there, guy. If you don't want to be that's right compared to a <laughs> sexual remedy. <laughs> 
Now, I, uh, I will concede, Nick, that this fun book would be great for young adults, as well as young at heart adults. And this book is all about pop culture references. You're right about that. There's Easter eggs. There's 80s and 90s show references. There's songs, films, video game name drops. I mean, if you're not into that, you probably shouldn't be listening to the content clearinghouse either. Yeah, get off the feed, Nick. (laughs) I mean, Ready Player One is like a contentologist treasure trove. Um, So I'm going to get into the plot a little bit. Minor spoilers ahead. As I've already made very clear, uh, I believe, this story is set in uh, your second favorite content genre right below zombies it is a dystopian sci-fi future so good i love it uh life sucks for pretty much everyone in the year 2045 and honestly it's unfortunately pretty realistic given how things are going right now can't imagine it being better in 25 years (sighs) we'll see we'll see i think ernest klein might be predicting the future a little bit like a lot of great sci-fi authors but fortunately in 2045 there is one awesome thing that i mentioned before i got on this rant about critics it is the oasis this is a hyper realistic indiscernible from reality virtual world a virtual universe i mean it's less of a video game and it's more of like a simulated paradise where everything goes anything you could possibly imagine exists in the oasis you can be a different creature you can do any kind of action sport you can imagine and depending on the quality of your hardware you can integrate with this world to such a high degree of realistic sensation that it's almost matrix level plugging in it's almost as if you are there i can't wait until this becomes a reality we're like the technology in our world is actually taking the steps towards this right now. Like right next to me, I have a VR headset sitting on my desk. And I remember after reading this and seeing the movie, I was like, well, I'm just going to have to play VR for the next two weeks just to get this out of my brain. And yeah, <laughs> something crazy about VR is just about how immersive it is, even in its primitive state of where we exist now for the first like month or so of using this VR headset, I was seriously having like VR flashbacks when I was not playing games. So in the uh, in the software, there's this. It's like a, a bounding box that you draw around your play area, and when you get near it, this like blue wireframe mesh will pop up to show you like, oh hey, this is where like the wall is. You're about to punch your TV, and I'd be like sitting at work at the wind tunnel, like watching people fly. And I'd be getting these like hallucinatory blue flashes out of the corner of my eye. Like I was in VR. I'm just like, Oh my God, this thing is like, it's seriously like rooted its way into my brain because you know, it's just, it's just so convincing when you're in the VR tech that we have today. Well, I've actually um, experienced something uh, very similar in an unpressurized airplane approaching 20,000 feet. I was like, I there's a little pop-up menu. You should not be up here. No, that didn't happen to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, needless to say, uh, with how awesome the Oasis sounds in this, in this book, it 
pretty much everyone logs into the Oasis daily to escape their shitty lives. I mean, think about how addicted we are to our cell phones. Now imagine like a real second life Sims level fantasy world where anything goes, like everybody's kind of be there pretty much all the time. So one of those frequent users is teenager Wade Watts. He is an 18-year-old aspiring contentologist of the highest order. Now, he's not really logging into the Oasis to uh, do the typical racing of cars, surfing of waves, and probably what any other 18-year-old would be doing in this virtual universe. Real dulling. (laughs) Now, he is actually on a mission to find an Easter egg. Wade is what is called in this world a gunter, uh, which is a term for an egg hunter. Now, it's technically not Wade Watts that is the uh, gunter that's on this Easter egg hunt, but it's actually this digital avatar that is basically him. He's controlling it. It's his VR character, Parzival, that is seeking out all these clues and keys to acquire this Easter egg. Why, you might ask? Because the creator, <laughs> the, the creator of the Oasis, James Holliday, pulled a Forrest Fenn, the eccentric art dealer who buried hidden treasure as we've discussed in a previous episode. Good callback. Absolutely. And if you combine Forrest Fenn with Steve Jobs, you'd sort of get this character, James Holliday. In his will, he left a series of clues leading towards an Easter egg, which is hidden behind this... St- series of gates it's unlocked with keys these are all hidden throughout the oasis and if you find this egg it grants the finder with both holiday's fortune and control of the oasis itself and in this universe in ready player one i mean this is this mmorpg uh it's a game for every single human being it functions essentially as a virtual society And they mentioned in the book that the currency, the in-game currency, is actually the most stable currency in the world. So this isn't just a game. I mean, this is a big ol' win in reality, too. It's become like, it's almost like a basic human right in this world to have access to the Oasis. And I love the way that in the story, you know, it's like, to go anywhere in the Oasis, you have to have the in-game currency. And then, like, it plays into the way the story is built of allowing anyone to be the most successful gunter, the way that it ties in with the currency of the world and the and the need to travel. So how do you find these clues, these gates, these keys, and eventually the egg? You study content, just like Josh and I. Now, the content that James Holliday was into is a lot of 80s pop culture. So the the references in Ready Player One, they include but are not limited to Dungeons and Dragons, War Games, Pac-Man, Blade Runner, Schoolhouse Rock, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Back to the Future, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Star Trek, Star Wars, The Shining... And even the content clearinghouse, if <laughs> if we're going to retcon the story. If you really squint your eyes and imagine <laughs> that it's there. So that's really all I'm going to share about the book because I don't want to spoil anything big. Um, I mean, it really is fantastic. It is a fantastical piece of literature. And if you aren't Nick Shager and you have a heart and you are <laughs> capable of feeling nostalgic for 
the awesome content of the past, you will enjoy the shit out of this unique adventure. But before I log out, I, I do want to mention a few more things. So as you probably know, Ready Player One was turned into a movie. It's actually a Steven Spielberg movie. What did you think of it? I think I'm going to be going against type and saying that I really liked it, man. Okay. Because, so I was going to ask you what you think about the movie. It sounds like you may not agree with me. But I, it's kind of like, you know, the the whole discussion we had about critics earlier. You know, I think that a lot of people that read the book were upset that it didn't follow, like, the same storyline for, like, what the different eggs missions were to acquire each egg. And to that, I say, like, why would you not want them to rewrite those missions? In the in the book, those are, you know, there's these three missions that have to be accomplished to get each egg and, you know, getting, or I guess they're the key. There's three mm-hmm, keys, yeah. and those keys lead to the egg. But the, the missions he goes on to get the keys are, you know, it's kind of like what breaks the story up into segments. And if you know exactly what's going to happen going into the movie, there's no, like, you know, sense of a real adventure or, like, drama or anything so i really like that they rewrote what's required i remember watching the movie and on the first key mission it's like this car race and you know in the book that there's nothing like that and i just realized like oh they're you know they're going off script because they want to make this exciting for people who know every beat of the book people like me that have read the book maybe you know eight or ten times already because it's such an awesome story. So I really I really liked it and I've watched it several times since it came out. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that I kind of like the movie. Um I actually think that it detracts uh the the main thing that detracts from the movie for me is how damn good the book is. So I I mean, I really like when I read something and then it's like very well represented on screen. I mean, I think Harry Potter is a fantastic example of this where it like really sticks to the storyline. It really captures some essence of the literature that is like difficult to put into words. Um, I mean, the movie, if you saw it without knowing about the book, I think you would have a great time. I mean, it is a stunning visual spectacle. It is truly a feast. It really is amazing for the eyes. It is. I mean, it really is classic Spielberg too. It's it's uh, it's lighthearted. It's well executed. It's kind of like an adventure story. It's like a, a Goonies in the future. You know, we love um, Goonies. <laughs> absolutely. But it it also. I mean, I think it stays pretty true to the storyline. Like, yeah, there's a couple of deviations. The ones that bothered me the most were the character deviations. Um, but still, the movie has a great cast. It has insane special effects. But it just, it, I can't shake the feeling that it feels like hollowed out or it's like missing the heart that is so prevalent in the book. That's, that's my feeling. I mean, I liked the movie, but I don't think that uh, Ready Player One, the movie... Uh, would ever make it on the podcast, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, the book is definitely better. Like Almost with every book-to-movie translation, with maybe the exception of Jurassic Park, which I went back and read Jurassic Park as an adult, and I was like, these goddamn kids are so annoying. And yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I almost like couldn't get through the book, but the movie is just like almost a perfect film. Again, Spielberg. But, you know, like with this movie, 
I there there were times and I read the book after seeing the movie and I couldn't help but applying the visuals from the film into you know like my mind's eye when I'm reading the book. Yeah, and so I think it had like a it had enough of an impact on me. I liked it enough that I started to like cross pollinate the two. But it's interesting what you said about Harry Potter because I love Harry Potter. I, I read those in college and those were definitely like I think maybe a little over the line into YA. They, you know, those are like definitely kids books. But, you know, when I was in college and I was, you know, like studying graphic design and computer animation, it all kind of felt magical to me. And I just remember thinking how cool the idea of like going to magic school is. But then when the movies came out, I was like, I was not really sold on the movies much. So... Yeah, I, I, I kind of have the you know, reverse effect. I liked the Ready Player One movie, and I wasn't a big fa- fan of the Harry Potter movies. Interesting. Well, uh, you know, it just goes to show that even professional contentologists can disagree every once in a while. Um, and in the great words of Mitch Hedberg, every book <laughs> is a kid's book if the kid can read. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, that guy could nail a one-liner down. Oh, for sure. God rest your soul, Mitch. So one more thing that I did want to bring up with you. You know we've had this discussion before about entertainment and content, especially sci-fi, influencing technological process. We've not always agreed on how we (laughs) think it works. Absolutely. Now, if you remember, uh, and if I remember correctly, your theory was that the inventors of today and tomorrow grew up reading sci-fi, and they were they were trying to bring the things they read about into fruition. They were literally yes. inspired to create uh, the their their chi- their childhood things that they saw. I think it's a big My, part of it, not the only part, yeah, but I think it's a big right. part of it. I think we did come to a, a, like a. A 50-50 gentleman's a disgruntled, uh, <laughs> very angry agreement. Now, if you remember my theory, it, it definitely differed. I, my thinking was that science fiction authors were just familiar with the technology and society of today. And through the genius of creativity, they were just simply predicting, and most of the time very accurately... Uh, things that were just inevitably going to be developed by scientists anyway. Whether the scientists were sci-fi fans or not, it just was going to happen, and the authors were predicting this. The technology was inevitable. Exactly. Well, buddy, I think this is one point for you. So Ready Player One is a book that I believe, after doing research for this episode, will be directly responsible for a virtual reality world of the future that yes, it was probably going to be inevitable, but I think it's timeline is being brought much sooner because of designers that were directly inspired by this book. So we not can only, only did, hope, <laughs> well, not only uh, did the book ready player one, according to Klein in several interviews, it literally inspired designers at Oculus VR, whose, uh, I believe CEO, possibly uh, the founder of Oculus, he made Ready Player One practically required reading for new employees. Lucky Palmer. Yep. Yeah. That's him. 
So Oculus has also invited Ernest Klein to several events, including new hardware demos. Oh, man. That's pretty serious. He's like the and godfather. If, oh, yeah. And if this isn't already crazy enough, Directive Games Limited released the Ready Player One-inspired Oasis Beta, a virtual what? reality experience currently available for free on Steam and Viveport. Now, I have no idea if these things are good or not because I do not have a virtual reality headset. But Josh, I have no doubt in my lifetime, you and I will be tearing through downtown Tokyo in a Back to the Future DeLorean. You're going to be looking like Batman. I'm going to be looking like Indiana Jones. We're going to hit a, hit a jump. It's going to send us into the air so we can base jump out, land in a pool of purple Play-Doh. You'll get knocked out. I'll catch you. (laughs) Get to pull my main chute. (laughs) And uh, because the future is undoubtedly virtual, and I am one ready player for this to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Brett. You know, maybe in the future we'll be able to set up our own virtual podcast studio and record this show, quote, in person, unquote. You'll be yes. looking like Indiana Jones. I'll be looking like Batman. I built in microphones into my <laughs> into my cowl and your hat. <laughs> so convenient. Where were the other critics going? <laughs> critics. <laughs> oh man. Oh Nick. Thanks for listening to the show. We really appreciate it, buddy. <laughs> Nothing personal. It's just business. Maybe like Ready Player One next time. Uh, Brett, that was awesome, man. Actually probably gonna have to go back and read the book again now it's it's one of the things that's in my kindle reading list that every once in a while when i can't find another book that i want to read like a new book and i'll just scroll through and like oh i own this and i'll just like click on it and then it's like game over it'll just be like three days and until it's fully consumed yeah it's a it's a great one it's definitely in my like it's in my long-term circuit it's always getting sure. recycled so great For sure. Check it out. Ready Player One, one of the best books, best books out there. And if it wasn't, wouldn't be on the show. That's all I got to say. That's all we do. Best of the best. Well, thanks for bringing it up, man. Thanks for uh, jamming it back into my brain hole. (laughs) And uh, all the listeners, thanks for jamming the show into your ear holes. We really appreciate that. Um, Please share the show with your friends. Word of mouth is still the best way for us to grow listenership. Also, um, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Content Clearinghouse. We do uh, a few posts every single week. We try to make them funny sometimes, try to make you laugh. So uh, check out Brett's writing in those also. He really like puts a lot of time into making those extremely enjoyable. Every time I see one, I'm like, God damn, this guy can write. And uh, that's it, Brett. Awesome show, man. Really love it. Yeah, buddy. Don't forget your oxygen. Can't wait to see you in Texas for some sky jumps. Let's tear the sky a new air hole. Thanks for listening to the show. 